0: those first eight verses that we read. Just a quick prayer before we begin. Father, open our eyes, please, and let us behold the wondrous things that are in your law. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Now, hands that will obey, hearts that will believe, minds that will understand. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. How do you feel about surprises? Personally, I'm not, I'm not real big on surprises. I don't, I don't like surprises that much. I like to know exactly what's going to happen, exactly when it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, what's going down, when it happens, how long I will be there, and when I get to go back home, how much I can control. A bit of a control freak, I guess. I like to have all those details laid out before me, before anything actually gets started. When it comes to Christmas and birthday presents, I think I was always uh, the type of person that wanted to know ahead of time what was inside those boxes. I would rather not wait. I, would, I, would, I don't mind ruining the surprise. I'd rather do it that way and have three weeks of anticipating putting my eyes on it, but knowing what I'm going to put my eyes on. And even when I give someone else a gift, it's very difficult for me to keep that under lock and key until the day... I want that person to be as excited as I am now rather than wait and then only get one day to be excited. Like, I am excited now. I, I just don't really like surprises. Now, I know some people absolutely hate surprises. Uh, they will go through extreme lengths to uh, make sure that the surprise does not happen that way. And I don't think that I am that bad, but I just, I just like to know what's going on. Sometimes a surprise is the actual arrival of an event. It's the thing itself that comes. But other times, the surprise is in that what you thought you were going to get or you anticipated to come turns out to be nothing like what you'd hoped. Sometimes it's for the good. Sometimes that's for the bad. This story in Matthew 9 here shows us really how Jesus surprises a man. He, the surprise wasn't In that he helped this man, it wasn't that he was helping someone. Rather, it was how he helped the man that was quite unexpected. In this passage here, we find a unique story that Matthew inserts right here into this narrative. And verse one, if you if you have your Bibles, we're gonna kind of keep looking back to them and trying to see what uh, what is there for us. Verse one says here that uh, that uh, during the uh, sometime during this this uh, narrative, it's it's not necessarily. Uh, chronological. If you look in uh, Mark and Luke, you'll see them in different places in their gospel. But uh, just to kind of an overview here, Some at some point Jesus was back in his own city. We know from Mark and Luke that he's he's talking about Capernaum which was his, uh, he was born in Bethlehem so you may be thinking oh he's back in Bethlehem. But Capernaum was his new base of operations for his earthly ministry. That was where he, he uh, called home. And he was in a house there and he was teaching, verse 1 says, and getting into a boat he crossed over and came into his own city. And he was in this house and he was teaching. The Bible says that many people had come to see him that day. There were so many people in the house, in fact, that they filled the house. I imagine a house like mine. I know it wasn't like mine, but every time I picture the story, I think a house like mine or maybe like yours. There are people in every room. They're in the kitchen. They're sitting on the stairs. They're in the foyer. They are everywhere uh, because everybody wants to see and hear Jesus. Maybe you've had some event at your house in which uh, it, literally every room had people in it, and and there was really nowhere to go, and you would feel that no one else could come in um, the way because it is so jam packed with people, and it was likely due to the fact that Jesus's power was so well known. His his miracles were. Uh, something uh, that had uh, been spread abroad and so i imagine many of these people had come to see a miracle that they wanted to see what jesus would do Uh, they they wanted to hear him teach but they wanted to see what he would do now luke tells us that many of the people that were here were pharisees and scribes we read about the scribes in matthew's uh, story but uh we we know that there were pharisees and scribes there and very interestingly uh, Luke tells us that they had come from every village in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So I think that mostly the crowd here was made up of professionals. They were made up of the scribes and the Pharisees, and I don't think that they were necessarily there because they wanted to follow Jesus. Based on what we read about the scribes and the Pharisees in the Scriptures, um, their interactions with Jesus were not uh, not uh, cordial. They were not... uh, uh Christian-like. They weren't trying to follow him. They were rather trying to figure out his angle, figure out uh, why he could say things and get away with them and really try to find fault with them. Uh, many times they would try to ask him questions to uh, trip him up and to stump him, to try to get him in trouble with the local authorities or with, uh, with the, uh, the, the, the religious authorities, the Roman authorities, whoever they could. They just wanted to see him fall. And so we see these, uh, these people were in the house and predominantly, I think, were uh, scribes and Pharisees. Maybe it wasn't, but there were at least several of them there. Now, you're probably familiar with this story, but maybe not quite like in Matthew's version. You were here on Wednesday night. Uh, we talked about that just a little bit. This is a probably a, a very familiar story to you, uh, but it's missing a detail in Matthew that is kind of why we remember it. Because Matthew simply tells us, beginning in verse number two, that some people brought him, uh, brought to him a paralyzed man. They brought him a paralytic, uh, and, and and presumably they wanted Jesus to heal him. There's nothing unusual about this. People brought uh, other people that were sick and diseased to Jesus all of the time, and Jesus healed them. Um, we've we've already seen several instances of that happening. But when Mark and Luke tell the story, they give this one detail that really changes everything. Uh, every way that we remember it, and it's in how they brought their friend. Uh, if you if you know if you're familiar with your Bible stories, you probably know where we're going. But the the, the house was so filled to capacity, the Bible says that they could not come in through the door, and so they these men went up on the roof and they removed some of the tiles of the roof and they lowered their friend through the roof down into the main room where Jesus was teaching. And I find it interesting here that Matthew omits this detail because this is how I remember the story. We remember the story of when the men tore off the roof to get to Jesus uh, and, and they brought their friend to Jesus. But Matthew seemingly doesn't get the most important detail of the story. But I think he does for for specific reason. Because he keeps the focus on Jesus. And we've seen that time and time throughout these first eight chapters that Matthew keeps the focus on Christ. He's not focused on the people. He's not focused on the surprising, miraculous events that uh, that would pull us away from Christ but rather he uh, conveniently uh, moves past them to the main thing, who is Jesus. Because the main point of the story here is is not that four men tore off a roof to get their friend to Christ. As great an image as that paints in our minds, it's not what Matthew thinks we should know. That's why he doesn't include it. There is something better here for us. There is something more important for us to see. And so Matthew simply tells us that the men brought their friend to Jesus. Now, verse 2 uh, continues there, and it says, uh, verse uh, number 2, when Jesus saw their faith. Now, this could mean that Jesus saw the faith of the four men that had brought him, or it could include the man that was lying on the bed. Now, we can assume that when this, there's, there's a couple of ways we could go with this, that when Jesus saw the men's faith, uh, he was seeing their actions, their faith that was that, that, that produced action within them that caused them to lower their friend through the roof. Um, I have never wanted to go to a party so bad that I ripped off the roof to get in. If I go to a restaurant and it's full, I'll go to another one and I'll come back another time. But these guys were not going to settle to come back later. They wanted in now and they were willing to do whatever they needed to do. To get there. They were. They displayed the extremes that they were willing to go to uh, get their friend to Christ. No barrier would prevent them from their goal. But what what we see in verse number four, as we read as we read down earlier about how Jesus read the thoughts and the of the of the hearts of the scribes, it's not a stretch to know that Jesus would have known the the, the faith that was in the heart of these four men. And the fifth man lying on the bed. So it's also possible that when Jesus saw their faith, he was looking beyond their actions and to their hearts. We don't know uh, for sure what uh, Matthew means there, but uh, we can uh, use that and try to help to form the rest of the story as we go on. Now, most likely, everybody in the room is watching this take place. Imagine being there yourself. You're standing. Shoulder to shoulder with people, maybe you're one of the few that got a place to sit, but everybody else is just everywhere. There is there, everyone's in everyone else's bubble. Okay, and 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 you're you're not uh, there to move because you can't. You're there to listen and to watch. And all of a sudden, the the teaching stops because uh, dust starts falling from the roof, and they look up and they see these tiles being removed, and then they see four heads pop through the hole in the roof. And then all of a sudden, uh, they, they hear a shuffling and they, they see this, this, this large stretcher. And of course, it wasn't like a four-poster bed, you know, with a canopy. It was, it was a, more like a cot. Okay. And so they're lowering this man down on a, on a stretcher or a cot in front to, right to where Jesus is. And Matthew even uses a word behold there. Remember we talked about the beholds, uh, last, last Sunday in verse number three. Matthew uses another behold there to draw our focus to what is happening here. He doesn't want us to miss not what is happening, but what is about to happen. So behold, look, watch, this man is being lowered down because something good is about to happen. Now imagine it. Jesus has stopped teaching. Everyone is looking up at the man being lowered down. Everyone is still looking up at the men who is lowering them down. Then they look to Jesus. It's pretty obvious, I think, what this guy wants pretty obvious what the four men are hoping to see happen from christ i'm sure that for those who were in the cracks in the corners of the house that couldn't see or hear what was going on the word began to spread throughout the house someone just tore off the roof someone brought lowered their friend into into the room so that jesus is probably going to heal this guy and 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 maybe you know sit on my shoulders or 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 scoot down a little bit or Push somehow so you can see what is about to happen. You don't want to miss this. And as with the leper in chapter 8, we know what Jesus can do, right? Jesus can heal this guy. But the question is, what will Jesus do? And I want you to notice in the time that we have this morning, three gifts that Jesus gave the man that day. Uh, Though the man and, and probably everybody in the house had an idea of what Jesus might do and probably would do, As usual, Jesus did not do what they expected him to do. Jesus did the unexpected. Once again, he reshaped the public opinion of who Christ is, who this wonderful teacher and miracle worker really is. First notice that Jesus gave the man hope. He says there in uh, verse number two, he says, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus encouraged him. He's saying, be of good cheer, take heart, be encouraged. And essentially, Jesus is telling the man, cheer up. Don't be afraid because something good is about to happen to you. So if Jesus was telling the man to be of good cheer, that means that he was not of good cheer. If he was telling him to take heart, it's because he was in a place, in 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 an emotional state, that he needed to be told these things. He needed to be encouraged. I wonder if the man was, was concerned about literally crashing the party. Not only was he an uninvited guest, he was breaking things while he was there. Maybe he was concerned about the homeowner being upset with him. Some say that this was Peter's house. We know Peter was a hothead. Maybe, maybe this was, he was upset, he was worried about the, uh, upset owner at this man's recklessness. Another possibility, some say, is because he was afraid of his sin. He knew he was a sinner. Some scholars believe that this man lowered Uh, lowered through the roof was more concerned about his soul than his legs because it was strongly believed that physical disabilities were connected to sinful uh, behavior. And so things such as paralysis or blindness were punishments from God because of some great sin. Do you remember when uh, Jesus was with his disciples and they saw the blind man and they asked Jesus, they said, why is he blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And because it was connected, that it was it wasn't true, but it was thought that when someone goes through something bad, God is judging them. What did Job's friends accuse him of when he went through all that he did for for you know forty chapters, uh, give or take? He, they are saying, what big sin are you guilty of committing? What did you do, Job, that God would do this to you? And so some would some would believe that this man knew that uh, he was a he was a sinner, which was why he was paralyzed. But whatever the reason was, Jesus' words were meant to encourage him and to give him hope. Jesus reassured him, here, cheer up. He calls him son. The best thing that could happen to you is about to happen. Now, at this point in the story, only one person knows what's going to happen. And it's Christ. Man doesn't know what's going to happen. But Jesus tells him, perk up, cheer up, take heart, be encouraged, watch. And with that, Jesus gave the man a second gift. He gave him forgiveness. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Personally, I don't think that the man was too concerned about his sins. I think that he was uh, more interested in wanting to walk again. He wanted to, maybe he had never walked before, and he wanted finally to have the use of his legs. Now, for Jesus to ignore his legs and to talk about forgiveness of sins, I think is rather unexpected. If you or I were there, we would probably anticipate Jesus to make the man's legs work again. That would be a miracle. But that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus did. He ignored the man's legs, and he talked about something that I think maybe some people thought, this is not why we're here, Jesus, you're getting off topic. Surprise. It's not what you asked for. It's not what you hoped for. But it's better. It's actually better. I think the men on the roof and the man lying in the bed, and even the people in the house were expecting healing now that had been done before we've we've read uh, many times in the Old Testament, we read even in the New Testament of miracles uh we've already seen specifically that jesus can can heal sickness, he has authority over disease, over natural forces, and even the spirit world, so certainly restoring a man his legs to full health was just what he needed and was entirely within Jesus' ability. So surely Jesus would help him out. But instead, Jesus chose to heal a greater disease and meet the man's greatest need. See, the sin within the man's heart had done far greater damage than a pair of legs that don't work. Because though he was disabled and possibly gained the sympathy of those who looked at him, this man had rebelled against God. He had broken His law. He was a sinner. He was guilty before a righteous and holy God. And though His physical legs didn't work, His spiritual legs had been used to run from God, to turn from God, and to His own way. But Jesus, seeing faith in this poor sinner, offered Him the greatest gift of all. He forgave the man His sins. He offered reconciliation with God. That is a great surprise. And this is far better than he expected and more wonderful than any other gift he could have received, including the ability to walk. Now, if the story ended right there, Jesus did for this man the greatest thing that could be done. If Jesus said, all right, now it's time to leave. Guys, get down here and get your friend or pull him back up the man could still say, I have been blessed. I have been forgiven. But the story goes on. Because not everybody in the room saw it as a wonderful gift. Verse 3 tells us that the scribes had a problem with it. Verse 3, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. As these, these doctors of the law heard it and thought that Jesus was, was way out of bounds with what he said. Only God can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? Being able to forgive a person's sins. And they were partially right. Because only God can forgive sins. Listen to this. Psalm 51, 4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. A prayer that David makes to God. Only to God am I guilty of sin. When we sin, we sin against God. So that means that only He can forgive us. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Man cannot absolve people of their sins. That's reserved for God alone. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they got that right. Only God can forgive sins. But what they didn't get, that would, that Jesus was not blaspheming. He could forgive sins because he is God. Not only does Jesus have the authority to heal a leper, with a simple touch, or a man's servant with just a word, or to cast out demons, or to calm a storm with his voice, Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. But these scribes, though expert in understanding the law and, and, and the word of God that they had at the time, did not understand who Jesus really is and who this man was standing before them. And if pardoning a man's sins was not enough to prove his deity to them, Jesus revealed their inner thoughts. He says in verse number four, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, if we were sitting in church and someone began to speak things that were clearly contrary to God's word, let's say, for instance, they were saying something about, well, God is not real. He's only an idea. Or Jesus uh, was just a good man, but he was hardly perfect and and, and, and certainly could not be God himself. Hopefully, you would think, that's blasphemy. That's wrong. And I wouldn't think that you were thinking evil because you thought that what you heard was blasphemy. So what these men considered blasphemy, Jesus says, you're thinking evil. Why do you think evil in your heart? Well, because these guys weren't concerned with protecting the truth like I hope that we would be if someone got up and stood and, and taught blasphemy we would be concerned hey that's not right but these guys were more interested less in the truth and more in rejecting christ they closed their eyes to the truth and they rejected the message that jesus brought and throughout his ministry we read many times of how they 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 opposed him and they tried to uh to, to defeat him with with words and with logic and with even with twisted scriptures because they weren't looking for a truth They were looking for ways to prove him wrong. They were looking to twist and and manipulate and exploit words and actions to convict him of sin. Their rejection of Jesus had blinded them to the truth so that when they heard it, they considered it blasphemy. But the truth is, Jesus can forgive sins because he is God. And Jesus continues before they can even speak. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? or get up and walk he asks them a question here first off notice that jesus says which is easier to say because it's easier to say than to do isn't it we can say anything that's why the phrase talk is cheap you can say anything but then doing it backing it up is another matter technically man can't do either one here jesus is asking them a question which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. And, and, in all, in all honesty, these men can say, neither one we can say, we can say either one, but neither one we could do. We're not, we're not God. We can't heal people, nor can we forgive sins. But notice, secondly, that consider the options that Jesus presents. Because from a human perspective, which is easier to say? I've thought a lot about this this week. Of course, from a human perspective, it's easier to say, you're forgiven of your sins. Why? Because you can't validate that. I can say you're forgiven of your sins, and I can convince you, but we won't know for sure until you stand before God. And whether or not I was true in the fact that you're forgiven, you won't know until it's too late. But if I say, you're healed, get up and walk, we're all going to know in about two seconds if that was true or not. So from a human perspective, it's easier to say, you're forgiven. But from a spiritual perspective, it's easier to say the other. It's easier to for, to uh, say, rise up and walk. Because miracles have been done before, as I said, throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Gospels even. We've seen miracles. Uh, not necessarily like this, but we've seen all kinds. So uh, anybody could see a miracle. I mean, it's not like they happened every day. But miracles had happened, but nobody had ever forgiven anybody. That was reserved for God Himself. And nobody, no person, no human being walks around and 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 literally forgives sins, because that is only for God to do. And consider this: what did it cost Jesus to heal someone? Nothing. It's not like Jesus, you know, had a power meter, and every time he healed someone, he lost a little bit of that power, and he had to go recharge before he could, you know, feed those five thousand people. That really drained him. No, that's not how it works. He did things like touching people and healing leprosy. He did things like spitting in someone's eyes and making his blindness go away. He did things like speaking someone back to life that wasn't even there. Healing somebody is not hard for him. But what does it cost to forgive sins? It involves Calvin. It involves his arrest. False accusations. Mocking. Spitting. Humiliation, beatings, whippings, nails, the crown of thorns. It involves a cross. It involves his father turning his back on him and forsaking him. It involved drinking from a bitter cup of sin. Spiritual healing is definitely not easy. But before these these men could answer answer the question that Jesus proposes to them, he gives the man his third gift he gives him the gift of healing he heals his legs and gave him the ability to walk verse number 6 jesus said to the scribes so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins he says this to the scribes and then he stops so i picture it he's he's talking to the guys the man is probably at his feet and he says what is easier to say to say you're forgiven or to say rise up and walk and before they can answer he says but, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, and then it says he stops, and he says to the man on, the man in the bed, so probably at his feet, what does he say? Verse number six. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He turns to this man and heals him. And verse seven says that the man got up, and he went home. I mean, he, He couldn't walk. He had to be carried in. He had to be lowered down and he gets up and he walks out. Now, do you think that this is when Jesus first decided to heal the man? Do you think that Jesus hadn't intended to do this until just now? I don't think so. Because verse 6 tells us that Jesus healed the man's legs so that the people would know that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. There's something very special there. Because see, the physical healing was granted, but not so the man could walk. The physical healing was granted in order that spiritual fruit might come. The physical blessing was intended to be the delivery of a spiritual blessing. Jesus could have healed the man's legs from the very beginning. As He was being lowered down, He could have said, stop, you're healed, you're good. Raise Him back up, let's keep going. He could have healed Him without all this interruption. He could have healed them without the the you're forgiven of sins, but that's not why he healed. Them. No, Jesus was interested in spiritual results, and he used physical blessing, physical helps to produce. them. And in this case, it was healing the man's legs. And those who saw it would see that not only Jesus could help with a person's physical problems, he could help them spiritually. The physical healing was meant for a spiritual revelation will. The man's greatest need, it shows us, is not to have a happy and blessed life. Not to have a body that is healthy and free of pain and disease. It's not to have food and water and clothes. It's not to have friends or a family or even a good support network. Man's greatest need is to be forgiven of his sins. Man needs to be reconciled to God. the man in this story needed something far greater than a pair of functioning legs. Jesus, by healing his legs, met his greatest need. And so now, with legs that could walk, and more importantly, with a heart that was cleansed and forgiven by God, that man could really live. He had a story of that. And that actually helped the people who heard it? Because if all he was to receive was a pair of legs that worked, what good would that story do? I used to be lame, and I met Jesus, and he made my legs walk again. That's great. I'm happy for it. It doesn't help me. But when he said, I used to be lame, and I was lowered down by my friends, and Jesus forgave my sins, I have sins. See, not everybody's got lame legs. Not everybody has blinded eyes. Not all of us have some physical impairment or disability that we need healing from. But we all have sin. We all have spiritual sickness. And everyone needs the forgiveness of sin that only God can give. And as this man made his way through a crowded house, pushing his way to the door, And out into the street, he carried with him more than just his bed. He carried a message of hope. In fact, everybody in the house that day could tell the story. Whether or not it happened to them, they had a story to tell that was far greater than highlighting or crescendoing at the man's legs were healed. Something far greater than that happened that day in the house. The man was forgiven of all his sins. Matthew tells us in verse number 8 that the crowd was afraid. But it wasn't just fear. It was a fear that caused them to glorify God. They said, we've never seen anything like this before. They said, what strange things happen today. God has given authority, such authority to men. The people in the house recognized God's hand in all of them. They recognized Jesus was not acting independently. He was authorized by God. God had given Jesus the authority to do this. What authority? He'd given him the authority to heal, but they had already seen that. They already knew that. What authority then were they talking about? The authority to forgive sins. Forgiveness is in fact the greatest miracle of all. Most of us remember this story by the friends, as I said, by the friends who pour off the roof of a house to see Jesus. But what should grab our attention even greater than that, even more fantastic, even more, uh, uh awesome than the fact that some guys were so dedicated to bring their friend to Christ that they were willing to, to lower him through a roof. More wonderful than that is that somebody was forgiven the for sin that a man who was the enemy of God, who stood guilty before him, lost in his sin, found forgiveness. God had made things right between them. No longer was this man under the condemnation of his sin. He was declared righteous in God's eyes. And by God's great grace, he had been carried in, but now could walk. But by abundant mercy and love, he walked out a changed man a new creation. Indeed, old things had passed away, and everything had become new. He was forgiven. Now we, as the readers, years later, must not miss the point of this event. This is more than just a, a very interesting story that we tell to the little children about how we brought friends to Jesus. The miracle that happened that day shouts to us above the noise of the clatter on the roof and of the crowd below. The miracle that day was the realization that not only does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins, He does forgive them. He can. And He will. Without the forgiveness of sins, what really happened that day? Man who couldn't walk before had been lowered from the ceiling and now he could walk. That's the story. Great. But he died. He is no longer living. Those legs that didn't work and were magically healed one day don't work anymore. They were laid into a tomb somewhere along with the rest of his body. But what good is physical healing that only lasts for a lifetime? only delays the inevitable. Our lives are, the Bible says, like a vapor or a mist. And any physical healing that we receive only does so much good. One day, we will die. Physical health and healing do not last forever. But forgiveness of sins lasts for eternity. Jesus didn't come to make our lives healthier and happier. He came to forgive sins. He came to save sinners. And to bring men and women who are far from God back to Him. If you've never experienced that forgiveness, know that you can be forgiven of your sin. Not by the good things that you do, because Paul wrote to us in Titus that it's not by righteous works that we do, but by God's mercy. We can be forgiven by recognizing the authority in Jesus Christ alone to forgive sins and by coming to Him in faith, broken, bruised, and sinful though we may be. The Bible says we are saved by grace and faith. It's not something that we do ourselves. We are as helpless as the man lying on that bed. But when we come to Christ in faith that He provides, you find in him a wonderful, merciful Savior. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, and if you've been forgiven of your sins, don't you forget how miraculous that is to be forgiven. Be thankful. Give God praise and thank for what he's done in your life. And also be obedient. Like the man in the story, whom Jesus healed, he said, rise up and walk. He commanded him to do something. And he, and he demonstrated the good things that God had done for him. Let us use the physical blessings in our life as a way to point others to the God who gave them to us and as an opportunity to tell the greatest miracle of all. a song, I just want to say that I read the words to you and we'll be finished. So salvation is a miracle to me. All heaven cheers when one lost sinner's been set free. He came to die that we might live, and the life he gives we live abundantly. I know he fed the crowds with just a loaf of bread. He walked upon the sea and even raised the dead. But of all the signs and wonders this world will ever see, salvation is a miracle to me. Let's pray.